Hello and welcome to Smoke and Burn. I'm Casey Gresset, and today I'm joined by Dan Hickey, who is the service manager of Subaru of Wichita and is also a um, group trainer for the Eddie's group. Uh, how you doing, Dan? Great, Casey. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. So just to give the uh, the audience a little bit of context, um, you've worked with the Eddie's group quite a bit. You've, you've been with them for a long time, haven't you? Yeah, I have. Um, uh, uh, my boss, our service director for the dealership, hired me. Oh, going on six years ago, actually. So um, I've rode around to all the different stores that we own. Uh, I think we've got a total of six franchises fr- franchises now. A little bit more if you consider uh, uh, Dodge, Ram, Jeep, all separate franchises. But um, yeah, I've rode around the stores for the last uh, going on six years. And Dan has been uh, very influential in getting the BG program and maintenance sales in general up and running at the, uh, at the Eddie's group. So um, I thought he would have a great perspective on some of the things that, you know, we deal with on a daily basis. So Dan, you've been in the industry a long time. Can you kind of walk me through your, your career? <clears throat> yep. Um, so uh, out of high school, I guess, well, I guess we can start before high school. I've, I grew up in a Honda Harley Davidson dealership when I was a kid growing up. I swept floors when I was oh, 19 years old. And I remember the days when you were pulling paper out from right the brand new Harleys, it would leak overnight um, for the show in the morning. Then I'd go back in the evenings and put paper back underneath them again. It would leak overnight again. But um, <laughs> <laughs> there was a reason why, um, you know, Harley Davidson uh, motorcycles were, um, were uh, uh, very good motorcycles. Um, they had a uh, they had a very big following, but it got real. It got a lot bigger, so supply and demands went up um, back in the the seventies and early eighties. And you know, obviously, look at them now; they've done great. So, I, I grew up sweeping floors, and I had a pretty good mentor. I, in all the years I grew up in this industry, I always look back to the people that mentored me, the people that taught me a lot, and um, keep my ears open and my my eyes open too. You know, listen and hear as much as you more than you speak, and. Um, so I've had some good trainers myself. That's where it's kind of rolled me into the, what I've been doing for the last six years for the Eddie's organization. And um, my dad had a, had a little shop and I'd work for my dad. And, you know, then when I turned 14, I had the need for speed, like a lot of our 14 year old kids that get their licenses and now <laughs> 16. So uh, back then, though, it was uh, we didn't there's not such thing as an import. You know, it was all muscle cars and 1970 um, El Camino and big blocks and um Dodge Challengers and lifted up four-wheel drive trucks with a lot of horsepower. So I've just kind of been around it my whole life, you know, starting out as a kid, um, you know, sleeping floors for Harley Shop and kind of worked into the muscle cars and stuff uh, through my high now, school. What, what area of the country were you in? Uh, Western Kansas. Little town out Oh, Western okay, Kansas. okay. Yep. So I'm a, I'm a Kansas, na- Kansas native. I was uh, born in Greenfield, Indiana, and um, my dad did construction. So um, after we were born, we moved to Colorado, then back to Kansas, where my family originally was from. So, gotcha. Okay. Uh, so grew up, you know, around cars your whole life, basically. And when did you actually get started at a in the in the field as a as a professional? Um, I would say true professional. You know, not paid by by uh, uh, true paychecks, I guess, having a true paycheck. <laughs> um, my uncle uh, was one of the GMs for the Davis Moore Auto Group, and that was back in, I want to say, 1991. Um, I graduated high school and was going to uh, 
automotive mechanics. You know, I, I was just planning on being a, not just an automotive technician, but I, I wanted to do kind of everything in the store. So my uncle talked me into moving up to Wichita, um, Wichita where I'm at now, um, back in 1991. So that's kind of how I got my start. And I, I went to work for a, a Lincoln Mercury dealership here in town and, um, started out in sales, not what I wanted, but that's what was gotten me in the door. And I still remember being uh, 19, 20 years old, selling $50,000 Lincolns. And, uh, I just always kind of, I was, I was kind of hard to find a lot of times cause I was back in service, hanging out with the service technicians while they was working on cars. <laughs> so that was where you, so you were angling for service, but you, you kind of had to take what you could get to get started at least. Yep. Yep. And I went back and started working in service and, um, back again, doing, you know, the, the bare, the, the, the basics of, you know, sweeping the floors and cleaning cars and helping with the detail, helping the advisors, helping the drive, helping parts, just kind of doing everything. And then, uh, they worked my, they worked me into the parts department. Actually, they had a really good program back then. And, um, I'm glad that I, I learned from the beginning, but, they put me into parts first, actually, and um, I was working on the parts counter, went to the back parts counter, uh, worked on the front bar- parts counter, and uh, um, uh, luckily the, the GM there knew, knew the path I was wanting to go, and he listened to me, and uh, a couple years later, after doing parts, he put me on the service drive. Uh, we started my, um, my service manager at that time. Ford had a brand new program. It was called the uh, Quick Lane Facility, or Quick Lane, so I'm sure everybody's probably familiar with that now. Uh, Quick Lane was actually designed to be targeted not to just Ford customers, but the aftermarket industry. And so they, they put it in a separate building. And ours was ran out of a, the, the guys that listen to this will remember this, but ours was ran out of a, a house, actually, right beside the dealership to the south side. We took out the, we took a house and converted it into a shop. It had a, a show, it had a drive through garage and we wrote tickets up there and they went into the main shop for, you know, express oil changes. So, um, I'm going to say that was probably about 1993, somewhere around there. Okay. Now, uh, I know that at some point you moved down to Florida and worked for a group there. What, what point was that? Um, that was just a few years ago, actually. Um, I had the opportunity to go, uh, run a dealership down there, director of operations for a for a huge store. Um, it was, it, it, that store is a, that store is a monster. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about processes in the, <laughs> maybe in this casting, uh, but you have to have really good processes uh, when you're at a store like that. Oh, for sure. For sure. So, um, so really you've, you've worked in pretty much every role in the dealership then for the most part. Yep. Yeah. Other than, um, you know, sales manager, um, so to speak, you know, um, but, yeah, I've, I've, I, I, some days I still like, I still do a, every, every, uh, aspect of a dealership. I still sweep floors and I still wash cars and I still vacuum cars and I still have <laughs> parts and I still wrench on cars on me too. I, I kind of do it all still with all the guys, you know, without, but I got great help, you know, but every once in a while, you know, you got to jump in and help out too. Yeah. That seems to be a common denominator among, you know, guys who are really connected to the store tend to not just sit in an office and look at reports, you know, they're, they're typically out on the lane and then they're back in the shop and then they're helping out here. And, you know, just you wear a lot of hats when you're, when you're in that role. Yeah, definitely. Um, back to having great leaders, you know, that I worked with, um, a long time ago. Um, I was always taught that managing customers is the easy part. The employees is the hard part. 
and meeting that um, you have to you have to wrap your arms around your employees a lot. And it's a good thing because you can really see what's going on in their life as a day to day because it does affect your work, unfortunately. Oh, for sure. So uh, you've worked with a lot of different manufacturers then, and now you're currently with Subaru. Who, who's your favorite to work with? Oh, I'd be biased if I told you my favorite. So um, I like them all. <laughs> there's some I, There's some that I don't, as far as car wise, I just love cars and I love being around automobiles. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, there's manufacturers that are easier to work with than other manufacturers. Um, so that's the biggest difference. That's what kind of leans me towards certain manufacturers because they're just the the corporate level is different. They run they they just operate differently. It's hard to it's hard to imagine, but um, when you're kind of down in the the mix of what the corporate wants you to do, and as far as how to run your store and how to run your dealership, um, some some of the manufacturers really try to dictate what you can and can't do with your customers. You know, your customers that are servicing the cars in your community. So it, some manufacturers just aren't as easy to work with. Yeah, I definitely know that. I mean, uh, so in my, when I was in a territory as a, as a sales rep, uh, I was running Flint, Saginaw, Michigan and the surrounding areas. And, you know, my best customer was a great big dealer group, uh, in Grand Blanc, Michigan, and right across the street, you know, basically there was several GM training facilities. And so they kept, you know, close tabs on a lot of my GM customers there and they could just be an absolute bear to deal with at times. Yeah. Yep. Yep. No, the definitely the manufacturers can make it hard. And, you know, one thing that we as managers have to do is we can't make it hard for our employees. You know, our employees need to be easy. We need to be able to where the doors are open to where they can, you know, they can take paychecks home for their family, where they can get their customers' cars fixed, you know, in and out. Um, that's what makes it easy for some manufacturers that we work with. And, and I've, again, you know, working with six different franchises, um, uh, there's a couple that are, are a little tougher. That's for sure. Absolutely. So kind of on, on that note, um, what what are some of the things that that you've found make it difficult for advisors and technicians to to stay focused on their work? I mean, you know, what are some of those outside factors that you have to kind of keep control of in order to let those guys just come in and do their job? Yeah. So the biggest thing that has really come about, um, along with the electronics and the vehicles, and now you have a team that does deliveries and you know back. When I first started writing service, we wrote everything down on hand. It was a, we is a, what we called a JCO, and um, you wrote it down and you put it in a computer. And um, technicians worked on cars. Now we have uh, dispatching. Now we have uh, uh, the handwritten courtesy inspection sheets that we do for the dealerships. They're all um, electronically done. So it, it's as a service advisor, this is not an easy job anymore for a service advisor. Used to, I could walk in the door at seven o'clock in the morning, leave at six o'clock at night, and um, I could write up a hundred vehicles. And um, now it's, you know, a service advisor is doing really good writing, you know, working with eighteen to twenty vehicles a day. That's that's clicking along pretty fast pace. So there's not a lot of room for error um, with all the different programs and stuff we have now. We have. For a service advisor to write a ticket, I'm going to say there's probably at least five programs um, that they have to do just to make one service ticket for for a technician to work on the car. So it's it's a process. But with again with the electronics of the vehicles, with the um, 
uh, with the advancements that the cars have, warranties are, you know, the, there's a lot of underlying rules and under warranty. Um, it's not all black and white all the time, unfortunately, like it used to be. Um, and then uh, um, just customer service. Um, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't talk about customer service. Customer service wasn't even a thing. You know, your, your car's broke, you want it fixed, bring it in, we'll fix it for you. You know, now it's, um, you know, uh, customers, you know, we, we need to um, advise more than we need to be an order taker. Back then we were order takers, now we're advisors. We actually help the customer, you know, with their cars. We have to tell the customer what everything needs, um, but in an order to where they can afford to get a car fixed for one or two, you know, make sure that the safety stuff is taken care of first. So there's a lot of moving parts. That sounds like it. So touching on the write-up process, I know uh, you and I had a conversation a couple weeks ago where you were walking me through like your guys's, you know, uh, how you do a walk around and check a customer in. Um, what what is what exactly is the process that that you try to stick to on the drive? So obviously the first thing is the meet and greet um, with the customer, um, acknowledge the customer, say hello. Um, we we want to build relationships with our customers now, and so one of the things that all of our stores are doing is we all have tablets. And the tablets have helped out a ton. Um, I always look at it as the, kind of a give you a scenario. You know, you walk into a bank and nothing against banks, but you got somebody that sits behind the counter with a computer set in front of them. You can't see what their computer says. You have no idea. You know, all you all you can do is trust that they're doing what they need to be doing. And the nice thing about tablets is the customers you can you can show the customer as you're typing everything in what they're saying, what their concerns are, um, checking addresses. You can run recalls. You can check for service history. You can uh, make recommendations on what the car needs. It's all to touch your finger. So that's made it easier for an advisor. But also what that's done is that's that's helped um, on the initial part of the write-up that gets your customer interacting with you. And if you're not doing tablets, um, you know, I, I'm just, I, I just don't know how you can function without using tablets now. I think a tablets, there's, man, there's a lot of dealers using tablets now. Mm-hmm. And I, I've seen like mixed success with them. Um, a lot of it, I think, comes down to process, but some stores use them very effectively to exactly what you're saying, get the customer involved in the write-up process mm-hmm. instead of just having them standing there waiting while you're typing things into the computer and, and stuff. But other stores, I think, really struggle to find their their rhythm on how to use those. Uh, did you guys experience some of that trouble when you first got them or... Has it been pretty oh. seamless? Oh, no. I mean, absolutely. We had a lot of problems with them. Um, and it's just the fact of creating a habit. And that's one thing about managing is we have to create habits within our employees. And um, once you create a habit, though, it's easy. I remember the first time, um, not to name names, where I was working with a tablet, but I, I told my service manager, this will never work. This will never work. We'll never get this working right. And uh, because I was so efficient on having the customer stand right there in front of me, tell me what you need. I type everything in. I could dispatch it. I could send their, their ticket through to parts. They could pull the parts. Technician would be almost, you know, working on their car before the car ever hit the stall because I had everything done for them. And when we went to the transition of tablets several years back, I was I was probably one of the biggest people of um, saying it's never going to work. Um, and now I'm probably the biggest um fan for it because it, it works. It definitely works. Um, the, the, the best thing about the tablet is when you start the initial write-up, you walk around the car with the customer. Um, and what you're doing with that is 
you're not there to point out damage to their car, to them. You know, you're, you're, what you're doing is, you know, good fences build good neighbors. The last thing we want to do is a car to leave with any bumps or bruises, you know, jokingly what you have with you, you can always take home with you. Um, it's back to you're walking around the car with the customer and building a relationship, you're building rapport. Uh, that's something that, and the nice thing about, you know, back in the early nineties when I was 18 or 19, 20 years old selling, you know, $50,000 Lincolns, that's something that I took from the sell side and brought to the service side. And so I always did that on the service side on sales. You got a lot more time to build a relationship with the customer and service. You only got a couple of minutes. And so you have to make the most of those minutes. And the best thing you can do is stand right beside your customer and you can walk through it and the service history tab. You can click the service history tab on there. You can show them what they have done first and then show them what they need to have done. And so with, without that, um, it's not as, it's not as transparent. And we use that term a lot um, in dealerships now as transparency. We want all of our customers to see what, what we see. That's how you build trust. That's how you build relationships. Absolutely. I, th- I think that the, the, struggle that we find ourselves in at at BG at times is um, balancing the, the different aspects of that write-up process. You know, uh, of course we're, we're, you know, pushing the advisors to sell and, and, you know, present menus and all this kind of stuff at write-up. But I think there's sometimes a perception that, you know, if, if selling is our number one priority, we're not building a relationship and we're not, um, you know, we're not setting ourselves up to have a long-term relationship with that customer. If all we're trying to do is sell them things, you know, what, how, how do you balance that in, in your store? Cause you guys do, you guys sell a lot of maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our super there's, there's super. The nice thing about Subarus is um, super has a lot of serviceable fluid still. Um, some of the manufacturers I know have hundred thousand mile this lifetime this lifetime that, and I always laugh because if it was lifetime fluid, they put a lifetime warranty on it. That's, right. the, that's the first thing you have somebody <laughs> understand. Um, so why didn't the manufacturer give you a lifetime warranty? Well, because it doesn't last forever. Unfortunately, it's just like engine oil. Um, it just all your fluids will break down over a period of time. It does, does it may not get as hot as what engine oil does, and we all know to change our engine oil, but do we know to change our transmission oil? It's the same. Oil is oil, lubricates, and when it loses its ability, that's when you have your catastrophic failures and stuff. But, um, you know, just going over the maintenance menus like you're talking about, you know, with the customers, um, you have to make sure that the customer knows that you're there to help them, not hurt them. And listen, listen, listen. That's the biggest thing I tell advisors is, you know, you were given two ears and one mouth for a reason. You should always listen twice as much as you speak. So get the customers um, what the customer needs, what their wants are first. Um, find out what they're there for. And then you say, you know, it's, oh, by the way, you know, I know you're here for this. We do recommend doing these things to it to, to keep your vehicle at the, the best running conditions possible. Um, and give them a choice. That's the biggest thing is you, you can't tell somebody you, you have to do it. You don't have to do anything. It's their money. They can do whatever they want. Um, but that's where the advisor part comes in and, and a, a good advisor um, can assist the customer to get the products that they need on the vehicle without selling them that word sell. Um, you know, we're, we're service centers. So, you know, we make recommendations. If the customer doesn't want to do it, give them a benefit why they should do it. I mean, I guess we can call that selling, but we don't want to, we, we want to advise customers more than try to sell customers. 
there seems to be uh, a fine line between, um, you know, good active advising from a sales standpoint and, uh, you know, the, the, the scenario that everybody is afraid of is overselling, badgering customers, pressuring them into things. Is that something that you've, that you've had to deal with, with all the advisors you've worked with, or do you see that that is being a, a simple training process to get around? I think that's just in training. Um, I think as a manager, you have to listen. You have to be on the drive. Um, I can't think of maybe one of our stores that we actually have a manager that's actually in an office. And that manager that's in that office, he's on the drive way more than he's in his office. And the reason we do that is we have to we have to actively listen to what our employees are doing at the same time, too. We as managers can't speak without knowing what we're what we're speaking of. And so when we listen to our advisors, um, it's easy to fix it. It really is. Um, you know, that's back to coaching. Um, you know, teaching, training, coaching is as the fundamentals of becoming a very good service department is you you constantly have to coach. It's not just, you can't tell somebody this is what you're doing wrong. You have to show them what they're doing wrong in order to fix it. Gotcha. So it's, it's being in the trenches with them rather than the, uh, the, the stereotypical, like, this is what you're going to do. Or are you going to find someplace else to work? Right. Yeah, exactly. I've, I guess the, the thing that I enjoy about services, I generally like my job. I love working with employees. I love working with customers. I like to take a customer that, that, um, um, doesn't have the, the, um, all the information, all the facts and give them the facts in a way that they understand it. You know, you have to put stuff in, in the to what, things that they understand perspective. And I, I enjoy that. So when I do that, um, back to, to me, that's how I train and how I coach and how I teach is um, you can't tell somebody how to do it if you don't know how to do it. And all of our managers, all of our stores, are, they all know how to do it. They've all written service. They didn't just walk into a service manager position um, right off the street. I mean, they, they were advisors, worked their way up through the ranks and, and become managers. So talking about transparency, um, you guys do uh, – a ton of video inspections, uh, mm-hmm. through true video. Uh, how, how influential has that been in your guys's process? And, and what do you see as being the, the benefits of that besides another chance to, to sell off of a multi-point? Um, it's huge. It is. Uh, so when that car goes behind the wall, um, I think one of the things customers come in on the defense because they feel like you're going to take advantage of them, right? I mean, you, you have to, the customers are always going to feel that way because they don't see what you're doing. And when you show the video of your car to a customer and you show them their car, it's their vehicle they're working on, not just an example of this is what a brake pad looks at. This is what your brake pads look like. Not an example of this is what a tire looks like when it's good. It shows them their tire. And, and the other thing about the videos is um, we teach our technicians too is, don't point out all the bad stuff. I mean, point out that the, the bad stuff is there and you have to make sure the customer knows about the bad stuff, but show them the good stuff. Um, one thing, again, working with people that have done very well for me and I've listened to very closely, uh, one manager that I talked to a long time ago that I worked with, um, he always said, the, show them the wins. Show the customer the good stuff. Don't show them the bad stuff off the bat. Show them the things that, they, that they've done very well. 
you know, hey, Miss Custer, it looks like you did your 30,000 mile service last time it was in. Good for you. You're very good on that stuff. It looks like we're just taking care of the oil change, tire rotation, topping off all the fluids for you. And while we're here, we're doing this great vehicle inspection for you again. It looks like you know, the bottom side of the vehicle is in great shape. As we're talking, we're walking the, the camera with us. And that transparency, I, I, I look at, um, and any manager should be, and if you're not, you need to be doing it. You need to look at what your customers are saying, not just the surveys that you get in from the manufacturers. Look at your Google reviews and your your Yelp reviews and your and your uh, um, um, all of your reviews and stuff from all these different places. And one thing that we see very commonly is we'll get positive reviews back. First thing they say is love the video of my car. And that to me makes me know that we're doing what we should be doing. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And the the Google reviews, I think, are a, a big deal that gets forgotten a lot but you know calling dealerships and doing cold calls and things like that i end up looking up a lot of dealers you know when we're out in the field and getting ready to go make a a call and uh it's it's amazing how many of them have you know three or four reviews and it's generally not the people who are like i had a great experience it's you know the people who took time to go do that are generally ones that are upset about something right right or wrong you know, and uh, it's always kind of amazing how negative some of the some of the reviews are for for dealers, and probably through no fault of their own. Is that something that you guys have have? Do you have a conversation with the customer about writing reviews, or or are you just kind of letting that happen organically? Um, we're letting it happen organically. Um, you, back to fine lines. Um, some manufacturers, um, you can't actually talk about service surveys. Um, you can talk about the Google reviews and stuff like that. Um, so you have to really watch what you're saying. And, and again, it, it takes a really good advisor to be comfortable enough to say, hey, by the way, um, you know, if you want to go on Yelp or Google or something like that, leave me a good review. I really appreciate it. That's not asking for a survey. And so our advisors are real timid on doing that because they're afraid that that makes them feel like they're asking for a survey and some manufacturers um, that's a big mark. And when you say asking for a survey, um, there's a difference between asking a customer, um, did you have a great experience at our store? Um, Between coaching a customer, Hey, by the way, if you get a survey, I need to have you fill it out the first top box. That's coaching versus um, um, talking to the customer, kind of explaining how things work, I guess. Right. Yeah. That seems to be a, a subject that I've heard a few different perspectives on it, but I haven't heard. It doesn't seem like there's a uh, uniform, widely accepted way of having a conversation with customers about the manufacturer surveys that they're going to get back. And mm-hmm. I don't think anybody really wants their advisors saying, Hey, look, uh, after your visit today, you're going to get a survey and I get paid on that. And if you don't leave a five-star review, you know, I miss out on my bonus and I've heard advisors say those kinds of things, you know, to customers. What do you do with that? I mean, I know that a lot of manufacturers put a lot of money and stuff like that on those. Sometimes the advisor's pay plan is structured heavily towards surveys. Is there any way to, to brace the customer for, and to steer them where we need them to go on that? Or is it just, you know, do the best you can service wise and hope for they you know, it reflects it in the survey. Um, 90% of it's that. 
you know, if I, I've always felt that if you did a good job for a customer, there's no reason why they don't take care of you on a good survey. And we are, but the other thing is we are very customer service driven and um, back to fine lines. You know, one of the things that, um, that I used to always work when I worked with Ford Motor Company, because Ford Motor Company, you can, you can tell the customer that they're getting a survey, but you can't coach them on a survey. And so um, I'd always say, if you get um, a service survey, just remember that's my grade card. Um, take care of me if you get time to fill one out for me. I'd really appreciate it. And you leave it at that. Um, but you can't tell them, um, I need to have you fill it out 100% the best. You know, you just, you have to tell them, hey, if you get one, take care of me on that. And you leave it at that. Um, again, some manufacturers and the manufacturers get more and more about it. And I understand where the manufacturers are coming from is because they want real they don't want um, made up numbers, you know, and if you really drill into the surveys, there's so many questions the customer gets asked on it. You can usually look at the survey. If you drill into it, good, it takes some time to really look at them and you can, you can pretty much see where your fault is. Um, if it's, if it's a service technician, not following the process or a service writer, not following the process, or um, uh, there, there's multiple things you can see out of a survey. There's so many questions that surveys have, and any manager knows that. You can look at you can look at surveys all day long, and you can find faults pretty easy within your, within right. your system. So I like to have good information. I really do. Um, I like to have. A, I like to really know what customers are really saying, uh, because if if they don't, you don't you can't fix it. You don't know you don't know how to fix it unless. You know, you get one every once in a while and you have to sit back and go, wow, you know, did that really happen? Well, yes, it did happen, actually. Come to think of it, hmm, let's go fix this problem. So. Hmm. Now, being that you're, you know, in a training role now and that you've, you know, worked over departments in a lot of different stores. Let's say you walk into a new store this week and you're tasked with cleaning it up, right? What what metrics are you looking at? right off the bat to, to try to get a good picture of what's going on in there? Let's start from the beginning. Um, I looked at uh, the meet and greet is the very first thing. Um, did the service advisor gather customer information correctly? Did they walk around the car with the customer? Did they picture the car with the customer? Um, people like that stuff. We as consumers like that. We like that interaction. And a lot of times when you have, um, uh, when a store needs cleaned up, a lot of times because your employees just aren't taking the time to listen to their customers. And so I, I we've got a, a, me and all the managers uh, with all of our, with our, with that organization, with our, with our uh, Steven organization, we all follow pretty much the same process. And when you follow that, the store, that's really the only thing that ever happens why a store gets kind of um, bad or gets a um, bad reviews and stuff like that. It's because the manager is not following the process or the process is broken and needs fixed and needs put back together. We um, have customers and we have service advisors and we have technicians that are kind of trying to make up their own process. And then it creates chaos and nobody likes chaos. You know, everybody likes change, but we like consistency. And I don't think there's an employee that works for our store that wouldn't agree that um, we have to be consistent. Um, you, one person tells one, says one thing, the same person needs to say the exact same thing. You can't just like make your own stuff up. So I think that's when you, when you say, what do you look at when you try to clean a store up? It's the process and being consistent on what you're telling your customers when they walk in the door and making sure that they follow a good walk around process, a good write up process. And then also the, uh, the delivery process, the active delivery. 
Uh, that's huge. Uh, I've seen stores where I've walked in before and customer salesman service advisor, I'm sorry, just hands the customer a keys and said, Hey, it's parked out front. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, that's, very where's common, that, <laughs> but where's that warm and fuzzy feeling? Where's that, where's that bond again with the customer and the advisor that the you know, advisor needs to be the person that their customers can, can rely on and respond to. Um, it needs to be just like the person that um, is standing in line within the grocery store talking, talking about groceries. It's, it's, we, we start, <clears throat> we start um, just assuming that the customer knows everything. One of the things that, that, that I, that I, that not just me, but the other managers preach is think about this. If you went to somebody's house and you walked in the front door and let's say you need to use a bathroom, do you know where the bathroom's at? Not at all. You have no idea where it's at. So when you walk into the dealership, you don't, as a customer, you have no idea what to expect. It's, it's, it's our house. It's not their house. So the faster you can relate to that person, um, to get them to feel that they're accepted, that they're wanted, that they're part of our, of our team. They're part of our family. They're welcome to come in anytime they need anything. Um, show them around a little bit, walk them to the showroom, walk them, show them where the restrooms are, show them where the coffee is. Um, those are the little things that between good and great, um, somebody taught me that a long time ago too, you know, there's a difference between good and great. Good is just average, but great means you did the extra stuff, the plus one service that we talk about all the time, um, just to show people around a little bit. That a lot, that alone um, is huge in a store. So number one priority is just to, to fix the customer experience side of things. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when you start digging into numbers and reports and things like that in a store like that, you know, what are you, where, you know, what, what are you looking at to try to determine the health of the department? I mean, is it effective labor rate? Is it gross profit percentage? Is it, you know, I, there's so many things that you can judge a, a store by and <laughs> almost we, we kind of have a running joke that like uh, whenever a service manager gets fired, you know, he's always got two or three metrics by which he was killing it in that store and can't imagine why they would get rid of him, you know, but then the guy coming in behind him, doesn't matter what type of store it is, you know, all that guy's going to tell you for six months is, ah, you couldn't believe what a mess I had to clean up in here. Like yeah. what, what is it that you're looking at in a store to figure out, you know, where the fault lies, why it's not making money, why they're getting, you know, negative reviews or they're, they're, they're losing out on manufacturer incentives. So um, effective labor rate, hours per repair order, those are all big. Um, OLP, uh, which we call it through Subaru, is called OLP, which CSI, there's all kinds of different names for it. That stuff's all big too. Um, I don't really look at um, as much the... I look at the labor profit analysis a lot. I don't look at the gross profit as much right off the bat. Um, gross profit is something I start looking into a little bit later on, but you gotta, you gotta fix the retail sales first. And so what I look at is retail sales and what, what's the potential. <clears throat> One thing that our director does very well, um, he does a lot of things very well. Uh, if he's ever listened to this, um, <laughs> so, but, <laughs> but one of the things that, that we as the managers really like that he does is, um, he puts together a spreadsheet and we look at forecasting. Um, we can see very simply without have to spend a lot of our time 
looking up what we did the year before. Um, our, he, he already has our forecasting set for us. And so we can measure our performance based upon the forecast. And so you got to look at <clears throat> what did you do last month, of course. Um, what did you do three months ago? What did you do a year ago? What did you do two years ago? And as long as you keep going up, if you're going down, then you have to look really close at your um, RO count and wonder why. A lot of times you're, if you're really down, it's because your RO count's down. And RO count's usually down because you didn't take care of good. You're not, somebody's not taking good care of the customer. You know, whether it's the, the introduction to the service center by sales, whether it's the, um, the, the service advisor doing the good meet and greet, whether it's them doing an active delivery. Um, once you look at those things really close, and a lot of times you can, it's amazing how you can just watch that number to start increasing in retail labor dollars just by doing the little things right with the customer. So I, I look really close at process. And if you're asking me what I look at as far as a number goes, <clears throat> I look at RO counts. I look at how many cars we have coming in the door. Then I look at hours per repair order. Then I looked at effective labor rate in that order. Um, but if you don't have cars coming in the door, then something's wrong. You're never going to have, you're never going to, you can, <laughs> I would never hope any of my stores ever would just, would literally use the word gouge somebody. You know, I think all of our effective labor rates went to in all of our stores. And, you know, I even know, I know the other dealerships here in town. I know what everybody's door rates are. I know what their warranty rates are. And we all know which other stuff is. So if, if you're looking at for the Wichita area, so to speak, you got to look at your RO. You got to look at your your RO counts. You have to look at how many customers you're physically servicing in the area. And if you're not servicing a lot of customers, then you're never going to have the dollars. You can only charge somebody so much before they don't come back. And, you know, unless, and I know we all know this too is you can take somebody's money one time, but you may not ever take it again. Oh, absolutely. Now, is there a, uh, what's, what's your benchmark? I'm sure it shifts, you know, especially depending on where the store's at now, but hours per RO, like what's, what's a number that makes you feel, okay, that, you know, this advisor's got things under control. And, and at what point do you start saying, man, it, we've got problems here? Yeah. So, um, in this, in the store that we're at right now, uh, 1.5 to 1.6 hours on RO, um, is, is good. Um, when you're underneath that, um, you start looking at your, um, oil changes and you start looking at if there's declined service labor operation, we use declined service labor operations. And one thing is as for a manager, um, you can look at without having to manage your employees, you can manage the client service labor operations. And that's how you can tell if an advisor is making a recommendation or not. And then we use the inspection report attached to that as well. And you can see if the technician made recommendations, but us as advisors didn't make them. Uh, for some reason, maybe we think, well, you know what, Mr. Smith's been here five times and he doesn't need to do that cabin filter today. I think he's all right with it. Well, that's us that, back to we're not following the process. We're not making the recommendations on a car. So if you're below 1.5 for a import store, I think you're on the downside. Domestic stores will run higher. And we all we we know that um, a domestic vehicle uh, does have a little bit more mechanical um, hard part breakdowns than than the imports do. <laughs> trying to, Just trying to, be, trying to be nice on that, you know. But uh, you know, you you'd look at um, um, a lot of the manufacturers are really are building very good cars now. So we have a lot of maintenance numbers, but. Um, not all cars have to have the maintenance again that other vehicles have. So 
uh, an import vehicle um, just doesn't have the time and belts anymore that they used to have. Well, your domestics don't either. Um, so, you know, 1.5 on an import store, I think is doing good. Anything over two hours um, on a domestic store is doing good. Now talking about advisors, I'm sure you've, you've hired and probably gotten rid of your fair share of advisors over the course of the years. Uh, are there, what, what are you looking for? Like when you, when you meet with somebody for the first time for, for an interview and stuff, like what, what characteristics are you trying to, to, to flesh out in that person? Um, so the first thing that I look at is uh, customer service. Do I think that they would be a good customer service person? Um, I still believe that you can teach anybody how to make recommendations if they follow your process or they'll listen to you. But one of the biggest things is, do they have good customer service? Um, I've, I've hired, um, I've went to restaurants before um, and hired um, uh, waiters to be service advisors and, and had done very, very well at it because they've got good customer service skills. Um, that's one of the, that's the biggest thing I'd say is customer service. And, and the other thing is ask them, you know, things that are going to get it out of them to the point where is that, are they just doing this because they want a job because they want the money? I mean, we all want jobs. We all want money, but do they enjoy working around customers? Do they enjoy working around technicians? Do they enjoy trying to fix problems? Um, or are they just going to be somebody that's going to be there and just take orders and not, um, make sure the customers know the things that they need. So that's, I, I guess I'm getting kind of out there on a, out there and left field, but the biggest thing is customer service. If somebody's got customer service skills, I think you can teach them, even if they don't know about cars over a period of time, you can teach them a lot about a vehicle as long as they know how to take care of a customer. Now, would you rather hire, I mean, I know it all depends on the person, but do you, would you say that you typically lean towards hiring someone who's new to the business that's going to start from scratch or someone that has some some industry experience that you'll now you know teach your processes to? That's just tough. It just depends on the individual you're interviewing. Um, I, back to I'd rather have I'd rather have somebody that's got good customer service skills and somebody that's not calloused. You know, so when you get somebody that's in this industry for a long time, it's easy for them to become calloused, meaning that they just don't, they just, they don't dig deep to do their job. They just want to do their job and that's it. They don't want to do the extra stuff. Um, I'm looking for somebody that's willing to go the extra stuff. I'm willing some, for somebody that's, that's willing to sweep the floors and stuff while we have downtime, while we're, you know, wash cars and, you know, go in the lobby and make coffee and stuff like that. You know, I just need, I need people that want to do um, everything at the store. And because that type of person has more passion about what they're doing than just somebody that opens the door and goes to work and goes home. Right. Now you talked about, uh, kind of touched a little bit on RO count, customer retention. Um, and I think it's, you know, pretty safe to say that a lot of our dealership customers that we don't retain, you know, end up in the independent, you know, uh, around town. And that's, you know, any, any market is going to be similar in that, in that way. Like how, how do you view independent shops from, from your perspective and, uh, where, where do you see that, 
that section of the industry going? Do you think it's going to be tougher and tougher for these guys to make a living? Or do you think that there's always going to be a segment of customers there for them? Well, my dad was an independent mechanic for years. So I I would never knock an, an independent store for not doing a good job. They're obviously doing a good job. Sometimes they do a better job than we do because they've got our customer that we didn't do a good enough job taking care of in the first place. Um, independents are easy. Um, I, I've talked to several technicians, though, that went to work for independent repair facilities, and they and they seem to come back to dealerships. And one reason is because um, not all, I'm not saying all, but some independent dealerships don't really have good processes. They don't have a good work environment. Um and I think when your employees are happy, um, your customers are going to be happier. So I've lost customers to independent stores before, but I've gotten them back in other ways. And um, there's everybody's trying to make a buck, you know, so I, I can't ever knock an independent dealership. Um, I just think that dealership wise, we have just a better structure with the manufacturers helping us, coaching, training, teaching, um, our parts distribution centers are a little bit better. So I think we can take care of customers easier and faster. Um, back to the, you know, the independent garages and stuff, you know, we have a lot of testing tools and stuff snap on and, and the manufacturers have a lot of good equipment for these independent technicians to work on cars. But when you get into stuff that there's, there's just a lot of stuff that's dealer only stuff. I mean, there's stuff that, you know, my guys will work on a vehicle and I got to send it to the Volkswagen store. I got to send it to the Volvo store. Um, good mechanics have been doing this for 20 some years, but we just don't have the tools. Um, and independent garages don't have the tools. They don't have the, the $10,000 Ford IDSs. They don't have the, you know, $5,000 Subaru program tools. And they don't have the, the Chrysler, the Y advisor program. So the, the, the tools that the Chrysler store uses too. So. I think so have that, you seen a steady increase in that type of traffic from the independents then? Yeah, I do. Um, as cars are changing, I'm seeing more and more cars being serviced at dealerships, not independents. I think your independents are, you're always going to get the brake jobs and the exhaust systems and the, the hard parts and stuff. But with the computer systems that these cars have nowadays, it's just, you. it's hard to diagnose them. It's hard to test them. It's hard to see what's going on with them without them, them especially the, the special manufacturer's equipment. Right. Now, um, you know, as BG guys, we, we get to see so many stores and, uh, we see the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, <laughs> all across the country. Um, uh, one of the things that seems to be a, a, one of the biggest factors, you know, outside of just process in general, uh, between a store that, that does really well and that, you know, is constantly doing better in terms of maintenance sales and, and one that just struggles to really get their footing with it. It seems to be, you know, advisor pay plan, how they're compensated. Um, what, what do you, what do you see as being, you know, the most effective ways to compensate advisors and, and what's worked for you over the years? So, um, I, I like one of our stores when I first started with, um, the Stevens organization was running at 0.9 or one hour in RO. I mean, we was doing 1.1 was doing really good. And, um, so when I started doing incentives for the advisors, um, you know, um, little, little incentives and stuff like that, it made the service advisors focus more on 
their recommendations and their it's instead of just doing oil changes and tire rotations that the factory says you know back to again make them educated on the um you know if the if the transmission fluid was supposed to last you know lifetime why did they warranty the the vehicle for a lifetime then but just making advisors aware of it and then adding spiffs and adding little bonuses and stuff in there till you get to the number that you want and then you know you always should have you always should have you always should be wanting more at the same time right i mean why would we want to just settle for average because when you raise the bar now that becomes the median again that becomes your average again so you always want to do little incentives to um, I want to say motivate them. It's just it's to to make them aware of what they're selling and what they're servicing and what they're recommended. I know BG has worked with um, several dealerships and stuff like that, and and the and the service advisors, you know, they love that little that little extra kick um, that they get from the services they sell. Right. I think it's going back to uh, what you mentioned earlier about helping people form new habits. You know, it's it's difficult to step out on a limb for the first time and, and present something to a customer that you don't feel confident about yet. You know, you right. might know that it's necessary and stuff, but you just don't have the word tracking and stuff down. It's, it's tough to do that. And I think that uh, incentives, whether they be through BG or through the dealer, you know, they can, they can give that advisor the little extra nudge that they need to try it for the first few times, you know, mm -hmm. and start to hone their, hone their skills at it. Right. Yep. Yeah. We, uh, we started putting incentives in place at one of our stores and we went from uh, 0.9 to I think 1.4, 1.5, literally like the next month. And it was just making the, the advisors, we were more aware of what we was doing. You know, you, you can't, um, I don't think you can micromanage somebody. I don't think you can stand on the top of them and show them all the things that they're doing wrong. I think that you have to put an incentive program out there to make them want it. But once they, they want it, it again, it becomes the normal for them. And then, and therefore they make the service advisors, you know, any, any pay plan for an advisor is performance based. I don't know a single service advisor. It's on a guarantee or a salary. You know, if it's a guarantee, it's a very small guarantee and it's not enough amount of money that they could live on. You know, it's just a, a cushion, but once you create, um, again, a habit of selling recommendations, making service recommendations and using the BG product and, you know, um, just the smallest little things. Once they learn to create a habit, then it becomes natural. And then the number goes up naturally automatically by itself. Uh, for instance, we, we put in a new uh, um, alignment racks at all of our stores. And, um, and, and if you, if you've seen them, they're, they're the hunter drive-through racks. If you've seen Super them nice. stores, yeah, those things cost us. Um, it, I don't know the exact dollars, but I'm, I'm talking thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to put those in our stores. And some of our stores were only doing, you know, good car volume, only doing 30, 20, 30 alignments a month. And um, um, I put an incentive on alignments uh, for the advisors and we went to doing 50 a month, you know, and it wasn't the fact of just telling them they need to do it. You can tell somebody all the time until they want to do it. Um, it's like leading a horse to water. You can't make them drink unless they want to, they want to drink. And when you throw incentives like that out there for advisors, but yeah, I mean, our, our alignment are those, those alignment machines, those guys are just killing it with them because they can print the copies off. They can show the customers right there. It doesn't cost them anything. They do our features and benefits of what it does to your tires. Um, it's just like doing the, the, um, the BG fuel induction system service. 
you know, if an advisor doesn't believe in the, in the product and doesn't believe in what it does for them, they're never going to sell it. Um, but once they start and get incentivized for it, it's like, huh, maybe I need to look into this a little bit better. You know, maybe I need to read up on it. Maybe I need to take the, the, the BG tutorials and take the videos to test. And maybe I need to get my service manager train me a little bit more. And it's funny. They'll start asking questions and stuff about that stuff. And then they start doing it. And then again, it's just, they raise the bar on their, on, they raise the bar by themselves, just be it with a little bit of incentive. Now we've talked a lot about advisors, but you know, techs are obviously a, a very important part of, of what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that that one of the things that that has been tough for me over the years and it it's you know can be challenging even for the the dealer itself is is the processes you know that the techs use uh, the MPI process and stuff you know there's there's always kind of that tug of war between you know the techs don't want to do the MPI because they feel like the advisors never sell anything off of it. The advisors skip over the MPI because they feel like the tech is pencil whipping it, or they recommend the same things over and over again. Um, have you, have you had stores where you struggled to get that, you know, both players on the same team or uh, what, what have, what have you done in the past to get buy-in on the MPI process? Yeah, it's. I have been to a store that was very, very tough on getting the technicians to do it. Um, the buy-in process is just showing the facts. You know, the power of three. You know, three tenths here, three tenths there. You know, making that car instead of going to the stall tour. You know, taking instead of taking ten cars and trying to make ten hours one one hour per car, why not bring four cars in or five cars in? and make two hours out of that one vehicle, it's a whole lot less for you to pull the car in all the time and rack it up. Um, so once we, once we got the service managers, cause I had three service managers at that store that worked with me. And once we got everybody on board and, and uh, got the service technicians doing good multiple inspections on the cars, their hours per repair went through the roof. And so they made more money. You know, when you get technicians made that's paid, you know, per flag hour, um, you could take their flag hours and increase their flag hours by 20, 30 hours every two weeks. You know, you look at their hourly wage. And so you just have to break it down with them. A technician do technicians. And I, and I, and it just real recently, I had this conversation with the technician at the Subaru and they're absolutely right. They don't care about dollars. Technicians care about hours. That's all they want to know. They want to know how many hours you're going to make. They don't care about the dollars that it makes the dealership. That's, that's totally relevant to them. So you have to show them how they can make more hours and you have to break it down. Just write it out on a piece of paper and show them you're doing this many hours right now. If you took every one of your, let's say you did a hundred hours. And if you took every one of your ROs and you added um, three tenths to those 100 hours, how many more hours you make it and just let them do the math. Okay. So when you get a vehicle in and it's got, uh, you know, 30,000 miles on it and we as a dealership can make rec recommend makes you a fuel induction system service and the average vehicles that you bring in per our ASR is let's say it's 60,000 miles is the average miles on your vehicle. So how many opportunities did you actually have to do a fuel system service? How many opportunities did you have to do an alignment based upon the tire manufacturer's recommendations? Um, how many times did you have the opportunity to make a recommendation on a brake fluid service, you know, um, due to the manufacturer's recommendations or differential services and, and so once they start seeing that number increase on their flag hours per how many cars that they actually touch, that right there um, alone um, has a technician doing good inspections on their vehicles. 
So like those guys in particular at that store, um, you know, what was the, uh, the impetus that got them to actually start doing the process correctly? I start looking over the car like they're supposed to and stuff. Did you, you know, like the, like that makes all the sense in the world. Um, but did you do like an RO survey or, you know, to show them how much stuff they missed out on? Did you do some sort of a report? for them, you know, on a daily or weekly basis, trying to show them the, the opportunity there? Um, just going over the flag hours with them and their clocked hours and showing me cars they touched. Um, I was really very fortunate walking into the Subaru store. The previous manager um, had done a really good job on their inspections, on having the technicians do it. And so that wasn't a focus point at all um, for me at that store. The, the focus point at that store was getting the advisors um, to get in the front of the customers with the uh, multiple inspections. That was my biggest challenge there. And once I got that going, you know, back to, um, you know, I've always believed that a good technician can train a good service advisor, meaning that um, I, I gave you all this stuff. I did the video. Um, now you need to go sell it. And once the service advisor is confident with the technician, that integration period, that integration part right there, the service advisor will start selling more services. So again, back as far as the technicians, I was very lucky at that store. Um, the technicians were already doing really good inspections at that store. Yeah, for sure. I, I actually, um, you know, the other day when I brought my car in, for, and you guys looked at it, uh, the video that I got, it's kind of been uh, the standard by which I've talked to other stores about videos. I've, I can't tell you how many people I've shown that to, to try to make the point about, you know, guys, how are we presenting the multi-point to the customer? You know, is it, is it systematic like this? Does it go over every aspect of the vehicle or are we just, you know, green box, green box, green box, red, you know, requires fuel induction. Yeah. Um, they do a heck of a job. Mm-hmm. Now for the advisors, uh, when it comes to presenting that inspection or are they, uh, is there a particular technique that you use? Do you use like a rim presentation or is it, uh, is it more or less, you know, just kind of read off what the technician said and then just ask for the sale? No, it's definitely uh, rim orientated. You know, you've, you've got to address the customer's primary concern what they brought the vehicle in for and then make your service recommendations, number one, based on safety first. And then then what's going to keep their car from running down the road. And that's that's, you know, a, a rim um, sheet. Uh, we don't use the rim sheets, but I I we talk in the meetings enough about it. And so we always make recommendations based on the rim program. Gotcha. Uh, well, you know, kind of in conclusion here, I, you know, I, again, I really appreciate you coming on, Dan, um, working in dealerships over the years, whether you're, you know, actively, uh, an employee of the store or you're just in and out of them. Like we are, uh, you see some, some crazy things. Uh, is there a, a particular story that stands out to you of just something wild that happened in a store while you were there, whether it was a customer freaking out or, you know, you name it. Um, gosh, I've seen so many crazy things. I just can't sit, think of one to the two. I'd have to think about that for a minute. Um, I, Wow. You got me on that one. I wasn't prepared. That, that, that's, uh, I should have braced you for that one, I guess. I, I guess just the other day, I, I had a lady that um, came at our service center and, and 
I always believe, and I, and I have to always believe this, and as a manager, we have to believe this. People bring their cars to you because they have a problem with them. They don't bring their cars to you because they don't have any issues with it. Um, a lady's vehicle, while it was there, uh, we had, she had, we had done a flat tire repair for her. And uh, we gave her vehicle back to her service advisor, went everything with her. And I just happened to be there at 630 at night, still kind of closing out business and, you know, touching some things up and looking at some numbers that I didn't have time to look at during the day. And uh, I get one of the sales managers comes back and says, hey, this lady says you guys changed the tire on her car and she's got a warranty on her tires. And you guys shouldn't have changed the tire, but you said you did a tire repair, but you changed the tire. And so I went out and looked at the vehicle with the customer and um, um, she had, uh, um, she's right. I mean, she had three newer tires in our car and one oddball tire on her car. It didn't even fit the car. And uh, so luckily I went back and looked at the multiple inspection. The service advisor had made the, the recommendation on tires because it had a mismatched tire on it. Well, of course she was saying that we're the one that's put the mismatched tire on her and and after about 30 minutes of Senate, 30 minutes, literally, I, now it's like, you know, 7.15 at night. And uh, I'm trying to have this lady understand, we don't put used tires on cars. We cannot put a used tire on a car. Um, you know, there's a certain amount of liability you enter when you put used tires on a vehicle. <clears throat> and um, so uh, her and I went through her receipts and stuff and kind of find out she had a, uh, two weeks prior to that, um, she had a family member drive her car and ruined one of the tires and they just threw used tire on it. But, you know, it's just 45 minute conversation oh, and knowing geez. that we didn't do anything wrong, you know, so, but that, you know, that's, <laughs> that's kind of a daily deal. Again, I, I look at this as challenges. Um, I don't look at it as, as um, that it was, it was a pain in my rear. Um, I look at it as a customer had a problem. She brought her car to us for a reason. And we just have to make sure that she understands what we did to her car. So, but that's kind of a daily occurrence, I think with certain service majors. Luckily, I've never had a car fall off a lift yet or flip over backwards in a lift or flip upside down or, you know, we're like any place else. We've had uh, damage on cars. Unfortunately, we're humans and um, we uh, are our, our car wash. We we tore the side of a car off not too long ago uh, by one of our porters that pulled into it. But uh, that's, just, uh, <laughs> that's just another day in life as a service manager, though. Yeah, that's that's kind of a rite of passage as a porter. I know I wrecked a couple of cars when I was doing that. Oh yeah. And I, and I did it. I've done it myself. I, I remember my first, my first job of parking cars, I knocked a mirror off of a car. It was a manual transmission and, and I've driven manuals my whole life. I grew up on a manual transmission, put my foot on the clutch, started the car, jumped it off. And for some reason I took my foot off the clutch and thought it was the brake and knocked a mirror off of it and the car beside it, you know? So I'm just as guilty <laughs> as anybody else is. So I can't, I can't get upset about it. I kind of have to laugh about it, even though it costs money, you know, to fix them, but I can't, uh, when you know when you do it yourself you're not perfect and so you can't expect everybody to be perfect yeah i had a when i was in high school i worked on and off as a porter at a big ford store in michigan and uh one of the kids that i worked with was just a goofball you know and uh he had the thickest glasses you've ever seen you know i don't know if he was like legally blind or what but he he obviously didn't see very good and not a good driver on top of it. And it was like 2000, whenever the newer body style of F-150s came out, you know, 2002 or three or four or somewhere in there. Oh, the brand new one came yeah. out. Yeah. 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 Uh, single cab, long bed, uh, brand new. And it was like a dark blue color. And our lane was set up. So you had two base or two, um, you know, lanes that went through the building and then 
immediately to your left when you pulled out, there was the two quick lube bays. And uh, he he pulled out of one of those service lanes and tried to just make that turn all in one shot. There's a big yellow post there, like a big concrete pylon. And he, we watched him hit it. And we're all like, whoa, 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 stop, stop. And you could almost see his, the calculations going on in his head. He, he paused for a second. He kind of looked up and like he was obviously thinking. And then he just drug that pole all the way down the side of the truck. I mean, from the entire bed, the whole thing dented in scratched and and bright yellow on top of that from this pole and uh oh it was a mess customer freaked out uh the text made him go out out there and sign that pole you know afterwards <laughs> it was it was funny there was that store was crazy there was always something like that happening yeah the uh, store i was down in uh, florida running we ran um Oh gosh, that car ran close to 5,000 cars a month through the service center between the main service wow. center and also the express lane together. The express lane, uh, when I first started there, we were at uh, seven bays and we built another four or five bays onto it. And we had close to 20 some employees just in the express bay alone. And then the main shop we had, you know, the main shop was, oh gosh, uh, 52 bays. Um and then um, let's see, we had 52 bays and we had 22, 23 service technicians, um, six service advisors, three, four express service advisors. Um, I had, you know, we had uh, at one time at the store, we would have anywhere between five and six porters. So you can just imagine the amount of damage at that store, you know. So when you talk <laughs> about crazy stuff, I mean, I can't even, I, there's not one that stands out, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's just too many to to comp or compute. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. That's right, man. That's crazy. Well, again, Dan, I, I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for the, the insight and, um, yeah, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon here. Okay. Thanks Casey. All right. See ya.